This program deals with sensitive topics that may not be suitable for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. My name is Michael J. From a very early age, music became the center of my world. But as my father always said, you don't choose music, it chooses you. This is Rock and Roll War Stories. This podcast has been designed to be listened to like an audiobook from beginning to end. The story isn't linear and will jump back and forth through time, but you'll be a whole lot less lost if you start at episode one and work your way forward from there. Also, if you've been enjoying this program so far, Please do me a favor and subscribe and leave a short review if you're so inclined. It would help the show immensely. Thank you in advance. Episode 13. How the light gets in. I hold it up. I shake the grate, disobey across the waves. Tomorrow I'll have all the love I could ever ache. And I'll leave almost with you. Wilco, The Art of Almost When Exploding Boy relocated to Northern Virginia just outside of Washington, D.C., we had no earthly idea what was in store for us. It was an enormous leap of faith, and I'm still not quite sure how we had the guts to do it. To refresh your memory, Jason and I drafted our friend Joel Hurlbert from Rochester, New York band Officer Friendly to play bass, and a guy named Jim Ralston to play co-lead guitar and sing backing vocals and the occasional lead vocal here and there for times when I needed to give my voice a rest. Jay and his girlfriend found a small one-bedroom apartment in Arlington, Virginia, and my girlfriend Kelly and I, along with her younger sister Krista, Joel, and Jim, all rented a little house with a finished basement in Alexandria, Virginia. The first level of the house had a kitchen, living room, full bathroom, and two bedrooms. And the finished basement had two bedrooms and a full bathroom, a storage room that doubled as a computer room, and a large enough area for gear storage and an occasional rehearsal when we were off the road and had enough time and energy to do so. Kelly and I and her sister took the upstairs rooms, Joel and Jim took the basement, and we shared all the other common areas. The only problem with this arrangement for me in particular is that even when I was off the road, I wasn't really off the road since I was still in very close quarters with two-thirds of the rest of the band. It made for a tense living arrangement at times because our existence on the road wasn't always exactly rosy. It did help as far as expenses went, though, as we were able to split the rent five ways, so we made it work and we made the best of it. And it wasn't all bad. One Thanksgiving, all of us, myself, Kelly, Krista, Jason, his girlfriend Erica, Joel, and Jim, had a very memorable dinner there. None of us had ever prepared a Thanksgiving turkey, so we didn't realize that you needed to defrost it for several days. We found this out too late. We bought ours frozen that morning. As a result, the turkey spent all day in the oven and was still frozen pretty solid well into the evening. 
Thankfully, we had other side dishes, and I think I made a big tray of lasagna for everyone. Now, if lasagna seems like a strange Thanksgiving food item for you, don't laugh. Lasagna was often on the menu for Thanksgiving in the Petrantoni household, and it was awesome. I still make great lasagna, in fact. It's comfort food. Thanksgiving for me has always been more about the company and less about the food anyway. As an act of pure frustration, Joel ended up firing up our grill at the house. He took an actual saw and used it to cut through the frozen turkey and threw random pieces that he could manage to cut off onto the grill. It was almost comical to see Joel, this big strapping guy, struggling to saw through a frozen turkey. If I remember correctly, we all had some turkey at around midnight. We were all laughing hysterically the whole time. I'll never forget it. And I'll never make that mistake again either. Our booking agency, Cellar Door Entertainment, booked us on a completely insane schedule of 300 plus dates a year. Again, just refreshing your memory here. We played in rooms as far south as Key West, as far north as New York and New Jersey, and as far west as Mississippi and Alabama. We were barely home for half a week sometimes before we were loading the van and trailer back up and heading back out again. For as much fun as it sounds like, and it was fun at times, I remember absolutely dreading when we would have to leave. This was not a happy time for me at all. As I mentioned previously, I was more or less mourning the loss of the original band we used to be only a few short years earlier. We hit the road as a full-fledged party cover band, more or less. To be completely transparent, I felt like a stranger in my own band at that time. I didn't recognize myself in it anymore. I didn't know my place. It felt a little bit to me like a hostile takeover of the band of friends that played original music that I once knew. All the joy had been completely sucked out of it for me. My relationship with Jason was strained from the start. Joel and I were pretty much learning how to deal with each other on the road, sometimes painfully. And Jim and I, at times, were at all-out war with each other, at each other's throats. We were like oil and water on a good day. This mixture of personalities was not jiving 100% in the necessary places. And I think if you asked any of the other guys, even today, they'd say the exact same thing. We are, of course, all good with one another now, thankfully, but a lot of time has passed since those days. There's been a lot of water under those bridges now. The other three guys were pushing me quite a bit at the outset to step up my game and become more of a party band, game show host type of frontman. At least that's how it felt to me at the time. They wanted me to be more of an entertain or die type of frontman, and that's just never been my style. And it's still not. In hindsight, I completely understand it. Everyone was nervous about not getting repeat bookings in places. There was a ton of pressure on all of us to keep working so we could eat and keep a roof over our heads. In order to keep working, we needed to keep crowds and venues happy. I, for one, have always preferred to let the music take the front seat and have the entertainment come as a result of the emotional content of the music, a byproduct of it. Because without strong songs and a strong artistic identity, all you end up being is a dancing monkey. And we were a group of dancing monkeys during those years, for sure. 
And I'm speaking of this purely as it pertains to someone doing original work, not cover songs. Anyone can parrot back someone else's work. Shit, there are 10-year-olds doing that on TikTok and Instagram way better than most adults. Those kinds of things have never impressed me, though. The whole America's Got Talent type of aesthetic. I see it as very mathematical. It's kind of like being a juggler. I've never been moved by someone doing a parlor trick. I want to see your heart. I want to see expression, not imitation, and not technique either. I'm not saying it doesn't take talent to play covers. It can be a really fun exercise as a musician. And there are a lot of people that do it very well, especially here in Nashville. Way better than me, in fact, on all fronts. The talent here in Nashville is off the charts everywhere you go. And those people make a great living doing it. It's just never been something that's particularly moved me in any way. I frankly don't give a shit about anyone's technical prowess on any instrument either. I never have. But give me heart and technical ability, and then we're talking. Eddie Van Halen is a shining example of that combination. He had it all, and that's the reason why he's still so revered among all musicians. It wasn't just that he could play fast and flashy. That was only half the picture. He had a unique voice, and he also wrote great fucking rock songs. I know I'm repeating myself here, but I also don't get emotional over a cover song done exactly like the original in any context. Unless an artist is completely reinventing the cover song and bringing their own thing to it. Otherwise, no thank you. I just don't have any interest in going down that path, and I never really have. I digress. Maybe that's my downfall. But I've always said, even from a very early age, that I'd rather fail at being myself than succeed at trying to be someone else. Because if you create something to try and please a particular audience, and that audience ends up not liking it, and then you don't like it also, well, then no one likes it. I'm proud to say that I can still listen to every single piece of music that I've ever put out into the world. Some things have obviously aged better than others, But I sleep really well at night knowing I've always been 100% myself in everything I've ever done creatively, even if I haven't reached a mass audience. While I can't really speak for anyone else, I have strong opinions and observations about why Exploding Boy version 3.0 experienced such intense growing pains when we went on the road full-time. And here is my rundown. I think Joel wanted the band to be heavier because that's what he'd been used to with his band Officer Friendly. He was also trying to find and define his role in the band. Jason was under enormous pressure from both Jim and Joel to put more into his drumming style, to beef things up, play in a more flashy way. That was also causing tension. And by the way, Jay's drumming has always been amazing. He's one of the most consistent and solid drummers I've ever played with. And I've been lucky enough to have played with some fucking great drummers. Jim, too, was searching for his role in the band. He had come from being a frontman himself in several cover bands around Rochester, and he was twice the entertainer that I was at the time. He was a great singer and a great lead guitarist also. Rapid-fire wit, an acoustic and sometimes vicious sense of humor. He could make people laugh effortlessly. He was much more skilled than I was at having a rapport with audiences and with people in general. I was still learning. 
To throw even more gas on the fire, we were now also paying two managers. Tony Gross stayed on with us, but we also brought on another friend, a guy named John Moyer, to help with management and booking duties. John had a ton of industry experience and connections, and if I recall correctly, was largely responsible for us signing with our booking agency, Cellar Door. John is also still a dear friend to this day. Two managers meant we had to take more money off the top of our income. We were also paying the booking agency 15% off the top. So, after all was said and done, nearly half of every single thing we made was going out the door before any of the band members even saw a dime. We were in a situation where we had no choice but to work all the time. We ended up investing in our own PA and lighting rig to ensure that we saved money on that front wherever and whenever we could. Since we couldn't afford a crew or any help, this meant that we, the band members, also had to load in, set up, run, and tear down this absolutely monstrous amount of equipment. We had four 15-inch Yamaha subwoofers, two per side, and mounted on poles attached to the subs were four 15-inch Yamaha PA tops, which made for a passable sound array in most rooms that we'd play. Some larger rooms had their own built-in house systems and lights, and we had to pay out of pocket for an engineer to run it all, which was usually the house guy, which in turn cut into our bottom line. Our mixing console and outboard effects all lived in a rolling rack case which allowed Jim to run sound for us from on stage during the show. We had two enormous lighting trusses with full-on large park hands that lived on stage behind us to the right and left, and a foot controller that would run the lights. We also had an enormous Exploding Boy logo banner that would either hang on a back wall or between the lighting trusses depending on the room. These lighting trusses, incidentally, came in super handy during one particularly cold motel stay somewhere along the road. We were staying in a really cheap roadside motel, and it was freezing outside. The heat in the room wasn't working either. It was so cold, in fact, that all four band members had climbed into the two double beds in the shitty little room completely clothed during the day to try and stay warm. I forget whose idea it was, but we ended up grabbing our full lighting trusses from out of the van, lugging them inside and plugging them in to generate some heat in the room. Those old-school big PAR lighting cans got super hot really quickly and generated a lot of heat, and it actually worked. If it were now, and they were modern LED lights, we would have been shit out of luck. Jay's duties at the time were setting up and miking his drum kit and running all of our synthesizer stuff. We carried a Roland synth with us to run sequencing for keyboard sounds for certain songs. This was in the days before portable laptop computers that were able to run tracks. Jim ran sound from his side of the stage, played guitar and sang. Joel played bass and sang and ran lights with a foot controller in front of him on his side of the stage. And my job was setting up and tearing down the lighting trusses along with playing guitar, singing, and fronting the band. It was a lot of fucking work. It's exhausting just thinking about it. In fact, technology and how it relates to music gear has come so far since that time. It's nearly impossible for me not to wonder how we would have fared if all the technological advances available now would have been around back then. It would have been a totally different ballgame. 
We crammed all four band members and all this gear into a standard box van and a small 5x8 enclosed cargo trailer. I'm nearly positive that the trailer was over what would be considered a safe weight. The box van belonged to Jim. Thankfully, Jim was not only a very handy guy, but he also knew how to work on car engines. Joel did also. This would save our asses on more than one occasion, as Jim's van wasn't exactly a spring chicken. It was a bit like the Millennium Falcon from the Star Wars films. She may not look like much, but she's got it where it counts, kid. Except, she didn't have it where it counted. She barely had it at all. But she ran. I recall one particularly harrowing trip where we drove quite literally through a nearly severe tropical storm-level event on the way to Florida. The rain was so heavy and was coming at us sideways, so much so that the engine in the van was taking on water and stalling out. We had to pull over to the side of the expressway so that Joel and Jim could remove the engine cowl from inside the van and actually scoop water out, actually working on the engine from inside the van. I'd never seen anything like this before, but I was really grateful that they both knew what they were doing. All the while, 18-wheelers sped past us, rocking the van back and forth like a tiny rowboat out at sea. I remember hoping to God that none of them swerved and hit us by accident. Once the storm had subsided a bit and we'd gotten a bit further down the road, we saw an 18-wheeler that had flipped and was on its side in a median. When we got to Florida, we read in the newspaper the next morning that tornadoes had touched down pretty much right where we had been stopped the previous night on the interstate, causing all kinds of horrific damage. We got really lucky. Prior to going on the road, the van only had two front seats and was completely stripped bare to the back. It was a utility van, plain and simple. Shortly before we left Rochester to set out on our road adventures, Jim set about the task of mounting wood paneling to the inside walls of the back of the van. He also put down some carpet that he had at his house and found an old bench seat at a junkyard which he mounted in the back. Jim's housemate owned a cat back in those days. We only realized once we were on the road for a bit and had the van in the much hotter and more humid climate of the south all the time that Jim's housemate's cat had apparently been pissing on the carpeting that he used for the inside of the van. Yeah. It smelled fucking awful. But it was also really funny. The stench itself almost became a fifth band member, it was so pungent. We just got used to it over time. But we were always much happier to be touring in cooler weather. The bench seat in back was fairly loose also and would move around on occasion. I'm sure it wasn't up to any kind of safety standards, it was the opposite, in fact. The whole thing was a road hazard. The lighting trusses rode behind the bench seat along with some other miscellaneous gear. You know, just some super heavy metal projectiles waiting to be launched into the backs of all four band members' heads in the event of a collision. There was, in fact, such a collision one night in Panama City, Florida toward the end of Jim's tenure in Exploding Boy. We were heading back from the venue to the band house where we were staying after the gig. Jim was visiting with a female friend who lived in town. So it was just Joel, Jay, and I. Joel was driving, Jay was riding shotgun, and I was on the bench seat in back. A drunk driver ran a red light in front of us from out of nowhere, 
and Joel had to slam on the brakes, but it was no use. We had a head-on collision at high speed with this guy. I was hit in the back of the head by one of the lighting trusses that we weren't using due to the fact that the venue in Panama City had a full lighting rig. Aside from some cuts and scrapes and bruises and normal soreness after an impact of that kind, we were all thankfully okay. I also had a nasty bump on my head. Once the cops came and assessed the situation, they carted the guy off to jail, and that was that. But, while the van was still technically drivable, sadly, it was totaled. We ended up getting another one that we purchased from the public works department in Virginia for a couple thousand bucks. Only this one was school bus yellow and had three bench seats in back, and it didn't smell like cat piss. We somehow managed to secure a sponsorship deal with the tobacco company Skoll, which ran a couple years in a row to help finance our touring venture. They gave us a healthy cash advance, which I believe was somewhere in the neighborhood of $35,000 per year. In exchange, we put Skoll Music logo scrims on the front of our PA speakers and hung up Skoll banners on our lighting trusses. We were also given a seemingly endless supply of chewing tobacco tins to give out at shows. Without that deal, I don't think we would have survived. I can't really overstate just how lean these times were for us. I just remember being hungry all the time back then, many times without a single dollar in any of our pockets. But there was always plenty of dip around. Whenever a venue would offer us a free dinner and drinks along with paying us to play, we were extremely grateful. As a result, we ate at a lot of all-you-can-eat buffet-type places on the road. Shoney's and Chinese buffet restaurants were our favorites. The McDonald's dollar menu also saved our lives and our stomachs on many occasions. And, for some reason, Jim came into the band with a huge amount of canned goods, which he gladly offered to share, which we carried around with us in a huge tub for the first year or so on the road. It was a shit ton of Chef Boyardee stuff, SpaghettiOs and beefaroni and that sort of thing. We also carried a hot plate with us that we'd bring into hotel rooms and band rooms to cook the shit. To this day, even just seeing a can of beefaroni at a supermarket makes me throw up in my mouth a little. I ate so much of that during the first year. We toured a lot in Florida, which I will tell you all about in the next episode. Shit is about to get crazy, so strap yourselves down. One of the perks of spending so much time in the Sunshine State, aside from the weather, was being either near or on the ocean for long periods of time. Joel and Jim, as it so happens, were both avid fishermen. And Jay was, well, let's just say he was learning. Aside from the lighting trusses in the back of the van, we also carried a tackle box and had a fishing pole rack. Whenever there was time, the other three guys would go out and fish, and a lot of times they'd catch dinner for us. There is nothing on earth like freshly caught fish. It's amazing. Aside from his exceptional talent on the bass, Joel was also one of those people that knew how to work absolute magic with food of any kind. I'm still not sure how he did it, but it was one of those things where you could hand him chicken, Jack Daniels, and a few random spices simple ingredients, and it would be the best thing you ever fucking tasted. Joel knew how to prepare fish really well also. There was one night in Panama City where the guys had been out fishing next to some other guys who caught more shark than they could legally keep, 
so they ended up coming back to the band house with some freshly caught shark steaks. A little saffron rice, some red wine, and Joel's magic touch. And we had one of the best dinners I ever ate in my life. On paper plates. Joel did give me one of his trade secrets back then. Old Bay seasoning. Trust me on that. That shit works on everything. None of us saw it then, but our entire organization was like a house of cards built on pillars of sand at low tide. It was set up to fail from day one, and it's remarkable that we even made it for the three years that we did. Rock and Roll War Stories was conceived, written, and read by me, Michael J. Follow me on Instagram and TikTok at Mr. Michael J. M-I-S-T-E-R-M-I-C-H-A-E-L-J. Join me next time for another installment, and thank you for listening.